Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the industry leaders at Do You Convert, where we talk about the current and future state of marketing and online sales for builders and developers across the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer? We'll do it. Simply send an email to show at doyouconvert.com. He's back, the one and only Jeff Shore in the studio with us on Market Proof Marketing with a new book, which we'll get to in a moment. Fantastic. Uh, we got a pre-production uh, copy of that from contract to close. But Jeff, I just want to start out because I missed a little something that happened in Austin, Texas this year. I've been to your events in the past, but I was unable to get to Austin. But I heard about 500 of our mutual friends made it there. Uh, we did. And there was a gaping hole where Kevin Oakley should have been. And everybody noticed it, by the way. So, yeah. Yeah. What was it like we had to, a have, great time. to have 500 people in yeah, Austin? I mean, it was electric. The energy was was really, really strong. And just to, just to stand, I mean, one of the joys that I have is that before you, the whole program begins is to stand backstage. You've done this, Kevin. You just peek yeah. through the curtain a little bit and you just see this going on. And all of the the mingling and the reunion time, it was just, it was great. And we, we had a, a great time. It was a great venue. It's a great city. And uh, I, I, you know, listen, let's face it. People wanted to get out. I mean, they they wanted to be together and That's right. uh, we, we accomplished that. It was a lot of fun. There was a, a discussion point moment at our summit where I just grabbed the voice memo app on my phone yeah. and held it up and, and recorded the sound of a hundred plus marketers talking to each other excitedly around mm -hmm. a topic. And I was like, this is, this is my favorite sound in the whole world. <laughs> I completely agree. And when you think about how, how often we get isolated and what it is that we do without that network of people, we don't, not sure who to call. We start trying to invent everything on our own. It's been invented already. Just pick up the phone, call somebody, brainstorm a little bit, pick their brain. You do that all the time. I do that all the time. But that's a great opportunity to do it in a forum where there's so much brain power in that room. I looked around. I was like, holy cow, the collective experience in this room. We, we've seen it all. We've done it all. There are answers to be found. You just got to ask. That's all you got to do. That's right. So continuing a little bit on that, do you feel like the current market conditions have created more resistance or acceptance to your team's training efforts? It's a great question. And <laughs> you have to just think about this by way of human nature. So there are, the circumstances change first, then the paradigm changes, then the behavior changes, right? So there's gotta be this normalization of this paradigm 100%. in between the change in circumstance and the change in behavior. And how long that normalization takes is gonna be a huge predictor of your long-term success in the adjustment to a market. So I would say that there are many out there who have said, yep, saw it coming. Absolutely. We get it. This is already normal. It's not normalizing. It's now normal. We're going to roll with it. We're going to go with it. And they're, they're, they're the ones who are succeeding. But I would argue that the tactics, both sales and marketing, by the way, have not changed nearly as dramatically as the market has changed. Right. And that's the challenge. I think we have to look at it and ask ourselves the question, have our tactics changed as much as the market has changed? Right. Yeah. And I, I asked that selfishly because most of the people that I interact with on a daily, weekly basis that work with us are certainly more in that they're more accepting of understanding the change because we try to not just talk about tactics, but about the psychology and, and all of the things that make us want to do the right thing and, and to keep moving forward and push through the pain of change. But a lot of the questions I get from 
uh, builders that I don't interact with as often, I give them the same answers, the same advice that I give anyone else, just in a much more abbreviated email mm-hmm. or text format. And yep. a lot of it comes back. It's it's like the uh, the story of of Jesus and the rich young ruler. It's like, well, you just have to do this. And it's like, oh well, I'm not going to do that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll go look yeah. for some other yeah. answer. Yeah, that's exactly right. But uh, what I will say though is that. There is a downside to this, and I'll I'll share it with you, uh, Kevin. What I'm starting to see already are the the home of the week boards, oh. and uh, they're <laughs> you know they're they're horribly done. Uh, it is marketing at its absolute worst. It's the sign of a you know of a desperate company yes. with a def- desperate salesperson coming along and uh, <laughs> saying, "Oh, I know what marketing looks like." And it's I I appreciate the premise. Do something. I get mm. that. Uh, but to throw all of our brand standards out the window is probably not the right approach. Uh, yeah, and I'm already picturing different kind of memes of someone misspelling home of the week, W-E-A-K. 100%. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. All right, let's get to the book. What what yeah. makes From Contract to Close a different kind of book? Because I would say it is a very different kind of book it is, yeah. than yeah. ones you've written yeah. in the past. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'll, I'll tell you, it's interesting, you know, when you write a book, it, it's a, it takes a long time, right. From the original germination of the idea until the time you get a copy in your hand, which I don't, it's in the, it's in the truck right now on the way. But, but what's interesting about that is that in that cycle, a lot can happen in the marketplace. So, you know, last year I released a book called follow up, a close the sale. It, it, it did. Okay. I think we sold, I don't know, 12,000 copies or so, but you know, in a real estate market where follow-up in 2021, who's doing follow-up in 2021, right? <laughs> the customer, and, and I, the customer is exactly, doing follow-up. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I wrote that in anticipation of a market shift that hadn't happened yet. So I suspect the book still got some legs in it as the market shifts. Oh, yeah. With a contract to close, I had no idea how much we would be desperate for new sales. And now suddenly with contract to close, I think the timing is right because the book is really about how to get referrals. It's about how to get referral sales. And again, that's something we've not really been focusing in over the last couple of uh, years, right? We haven't had to dig deep. And mm-hmm. in reality, the customer experience has been so lacking that it, it's it, you can't really, with a lot of integrity, ask somebody for a referral if they had a horrible experience. So yeah. that's what the book is really about. It's about creating the type of experiences that would cause people to want to refer their friends and family. But it is a different book and we can certainly get into that. Yeah. Sales hesitancy has been a reality even when sales were easier because of all of the pain we knew we were going to put the customer through, which then would be reflected back towards us. There was already that Pavlovian of, do I want to add another one to backlog right now? Right. (laughs) Uh, and so certainly referrals was not a focus at all to your, to your point. No doubt. And this book was also co-authored with Bob Merman, founder Correct. of Alliant. What was yeah. it like working with someone else uh, collaboratively on a project like this? Well, first of all, Bob's an absolute genius. Because I'm just teeing you up done... for, for when we're going to write something collaboratively. Okay, fair, just, fair so enough. I'm hoping yeah, it went well. Yeah. <laughs> Bob's a genius. Uh, you know, the work that Elian has done with the USC Marshall School of Business over the years is 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 makes the book so rich with with verifiable content. This isn't just an author sitting down and pounding out, you know, 30,000 words and turning it into a book. Uh, it, it We wanted to make sure that it was very substantive and that we could prove and have some statistical backing to the suggestions that we're making to builders. But but Bob's got that content after studying 
not from the builder's perspective first, but from the customer's perspective, what do they want and what makes for for a uh, an opportunity to refer in the first place. So it was really enjoyable. And I've known Bob for a long time. We work well together, and that's just absolutely critical. Lots of back and forth, no question about it. But by the time we're done, we we are we are both proud of uh, proud of this little baby. Yeah, I won't dig too in too much into that. But what you're saying is there there weren't always times where the initial agreement was there on a particular point of view, but you worked it out. Well, I mean, listen, the book had six different titles uh, along <laughs> the way. Um, we couldn't decide on the color photography or, the, or the, on the photography for the cover. Uh, you know, is and all it, look, all of these things, it's a collaborative effort. So you're going to work it out. You're going to oh, figure out you're going to come up with something. And, and uh, by the time we're done, I, I think we did. But it really started, though, with the question of what kind of book do we want to write here? Because we wanted to write a book that was easy for everybody to read. So this book isn't addressed to salespeople, although it's appropriate for salespeople. It's for anyone who faces the customer. So that would include uh, your your, your uh, online salespeople, your on-site salespeople, um, mortgage, design center, construction, customer service, and uh, uh, executive levels who are going to talk to customers. So we wanted to write it for anybody who was going to uh, talk to a customer. Well, in that group, you got a lot of people who were they're not necessarily voracious readers every day. Mm. So we wanted something that made for easy reading. And so we traced the story of two friends, uh, friends from school that uh, were very, very close, and they buy in two different communities. So it's a fable, but they buy in two different communities adjacent to one another. And then we track their experience. One has a great experience. One has a not so great experience. We The story unfolds a chapter at a time. And then we just pick up from there and say, well, let's talk about what we just learned through that experience. Now, Here's what you do with that. And we've included some discussion questions so that a community team can get together and say, what are we learning from the experience of these two buyers? Right. It feels to me like you had a different idea in mind of how people would use the book, not not just in terms of readability. It is an easy, easy to to get through read, but the way that it's broken up into sections, I just envision hundreds of organizations uh, going through a multi-week book club type experience where there's no excuse to not be able to read that section. Come back to the next meeting and look at those four or five questions and, and key takeaways and have a good discussion. That was our aim, uh, that everyone in the organization would read it collectively and talk about it together. And uh, just yesterday, I, I finished the audiobook recording. So we're that's in production now. So there's not even an excuse if you say, I don't like to read. You can you can listen uh, to it in, in the car while you're driving around. But yeah, that's look, the, the reality is that When we look at customer care, we can see it as a program or we can see it as a culture. But this really does begin from the top of the organization. And when I think about Mm -hmm. companies that have done a fantastic job of creating great customer care environments, that only happens because at the top of the organization, they're not just talking about it, but they're backing it up and they're throwing themselves into it. And when you see that, uh, they end up with the highest scores, the happiest customers, and the highest percentage of referrals. I mean, we've got you know, we've got clients that their referral rate is forty to forty five percent, and, and uh, th- those referrals—it's the cheapest marketing you'll ever get. Hundred percent, certainly way cheaper than anything you can get on the web or anything else. There's the cost, and then there's the understanding that that you get built in. You know, you're starting with a different amount of customer experience equity, so to speak. So yeah. it, they're less expensive to acquire. They're easier to move through the process with because they're going to give you 
uh, a little bit more space to to recover along the way because right. there's a little bit more of a introspective perspective of well they're consistently great so if they're good for me maybe it's it's you know not not all completely something they could control perhaps yeah 100% I, I, look the 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 irony here too is that if you are referred by somebody who was passionate about their experience then you are more likely to walk in with a positive perception of the builder, the community, mm-hmm. or the salesperson. And that means at the end of the day, customer care ratings are higher for referred buyers, which yeah. means they are more likely to refer somebody else. So there's this yeah. beautiful chain that takes place when you can get them to that level. Right. Even but mind the that, employees too, because you're, the flywheel uh, effect sure. spins in every direction because now your employees are interacting with, with happier customers on a consistent basis. Which let's all face it, and we, we enjoy our jobs more when we're dealing with with happy people. Yeah. But I think we have to address something here, Kevin, and it's something that I've been passionate about for a long time. And it was one of the things that stirred me to want to write this book and reach out to Bob in the first place. And that is that a lot of companies tout their customer satisfaction rate. They're going to say we have you know ninety two percent or ninety three percent or whatever it is. And I asked myself the question, what does it mean? The only thing it means is that about seven percent of the people hate you. That's the <laughs> only thing we know by that number. But the question here is what's happening within that 93%. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the concern here is that if the overwhelming majority of your customers are, quote, satisfied, if that's the high and lefty bar that you've set and you can get them to the point where they're not mad at you, those are not future referrals. You only get referrals from people who are elated. And so if I'm starting Jeff Shore Builders tomorrow, the score that I'm looking at is not my customer satisfaction rate. It's my customer elation rate. And I am convinced that if I, rather than taking all my efforts to try and figure out how to calm down the 7% and get them not to yell at me, and instead put that into how do I get more people into the elated rate, I would get way more referrals and I would reduce the 7% size of this group that doesn't like me very much. Yeah, or at least you would create a loud enough chorus of happy, elated folks that would, would drown out the other 7%. That's a great point. Yeah, or it comes absolutely. to your own defense. We see that all the time from builders who do sure. a great job of yep. this. Someone will make a negative yep. comment and the builder doesn't mm-hmm. even need to respond because three or four customers jump in and be like, that's yeah. Yeah. you know, not, not how it went. But you're yeah. not going to do it unless you have such a great experience that you've got something vested into it. So, so that's the issue is that if, if I'm satisfied, you know, if I have a really decent tuna sandwich, I'm probably not going to talk, I'm not, but I'm not going to blow that up on, on social media because yeah. I'm not passionate about it. I don't, if I have a really good pencil, who cares? I'm, I'm only going to talk about things that I'm passionate about. That's the key here. We've got to, we have to ignite that, uh, that passion, that, that elation. If we're thinking that we're going to get people talking in good terms. My first boss, uh, I think he got this from someone else, but he said, would you rather your wife be satisfied or loyal? You know, it's just satisfaction is not the goal in almost anything. Basic satisfaction. It's lame. (laughs) You got a, you got a sound effect for that right there. Oh yeah, I do. Oh no, wait, that's uh, that's, that's a good one. We got this. We got the bad one here. Um, there you go. In doing the research for this and, uh, and, and just preparing yourself from contract to close, which one, yeah. Do you suspect or or did Bob kind of prove out builders tend to do the worst at currently? Well, let's look at it from the customer's perspective. When we think about what what is the number one predictor of uh, customer elation? 
or if you will, the number one predictor of why customers are going to be not happy with you. And uh, it, it, without question, at the top of the list is the issue of proactive communication. Did they communicate without me having to ask? And those those words, without me having to ask, are critical to everything that happens. And it's a it's a, a big part of the premise of the book, that proactive communication, because customers are emotional creatures anyway. They're going through one of the most difficult and trying things that they'll ever go through. Now you add on top of that, the phenomenon called, and I know you know this term quite well, Kevin, catastrophization, Hmm. when customers start to catastrophize. And uh, Kevin, explain to the people what it means. I can't believe I have a one inch by one inch square of paint that is going in the wrong direction. You've ruined my entire life, Jeff. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> and I reached out to you people three weeks ago yeah. and haven't heard anything about it. So what else are you hiding? Mm-hmm. So that that process of catastrophizing elevates everything. And the less likely it is that a builder is going to proactively communicate with a customer, the more time we give them to ruminate and catastrophize over things that really should not be that big of a deal. So you take a customer who is emotional anyway, and then force them to come to you for updates. Now they're telling stories to themselves. If I don't call this builder, this builder is never going to call me. And by the way, what else are they hiding? And the next thing you know, they show up for a framework with four different inspectors in tow. And, uh, you know, they're going to tear you apart. So this the number one predictor of customer care is proactive communication. So going back to your question, then where on the contractor on the close, I would argue that it's up front. It's the expectations that we're setting and whether or not we can not just meet, but beat the promises that we're making. That's another key point in the book. I was chuckling because you're talking about proactive communication, which makes complete sense to me. And yet that also means if that's critical, that when the customer does reach out, speed of response matters. And one of the things that when when Mike uh, first started talking about the online sales position, new home specialist position, was speed of response being critical. And the biggest objection we always heard was, but but, but if you do a fast speed of response when they're shopping, they're going to expect a fast speed of response all the time. And what you're saying, I, I think I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but to me it makes sense. If we need to be proactive, whenever the customer is being uh, proactive on their end and we have to react, you can't and shouldn't wait three to five days to get the best answer. You should respond immediately. Because every one of those days, the situation gets worse and worse. And this is part of the problem is that we look at it. Let's let's take this to the extreme. Every home builder, every employee of every home builder always has, uh, at any given community, that one buyer. That one buyer. And that Mm. buyer is just calling all the time. And, you know, they're nagging you and they're a pain in everybody's side. And the advice that I give to builders, they, they look at me like, are you crazy? But uh, I, I look at that person and say, yeah, you need to talk to that person more. And like, what? Every time I talk to that person, I get a migraine. I said, no, no, no. Every time they talk to you, you get a migraine. So it doesn't matter if you talk to them about an issue on Thursday, you, you got to be prepared to call them on Friday and said, hey, it's Friday. This is when I do my weekly updates. I know we talked yesterday. I have nothing new since yesterday. I just want to make sure you're okay. And if we can let them know that we're thinking about them, even when they're not thinking about a hot issue, this 
this it changes the the tone the tone right it it, yeah. it, it, it we're going to flip the script on him right here i'm going to get to you and 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 ask you what's on your mind how can i help you <laughs> that's what a yeah. customer wants to know that you're thinking about them and not just simply waiting for them to uh to to uh to call yeah when i was running heartland i had 100 over 100 upset customers because of a transition from one ownership group to another that i was personally involved with and yeah. I remember doing what you're describing and the where things change, as silly as it is, is we were walking through um, this lady's home that was, uh, I think, back in 2014. Still, we had construction issues then. She was almost seven months behind schedule. And we were walking down her steps that had just had uh, carpet installed. And I was walking, I noticed her walking on the edges of the carpet. And I just said, you know what I what I've always done that is crazy, but I do it anyway. Is I walk on the edges of my carpet going up and down the stairs because I don't want it, I want it to wear evenly. And she turned around and she, she said, "You're just like me. We're the same person," which made me horrified at, at that particular <laughs> response. <laughs> right. But it was it was that amount of extra time and engagement and conversation that then was the pivot point. How we walk yeah. up and down carpeted steps. They don't want to know that they're alone on this journey. That, that's that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yep. I think the other key point here is that, and I mentioned this in briefly, but I want to expand on it just a little bit. Uh, a key premise in the book is that we only make promises that we know we can beat. Mm-hmm. We do not get extra credit for doing what we say what we're we're going to do. And I sort of look at it this way: if I go to a restaurant and uh, they say, "Yeah, it's going to be a thirty-minute wait." Uh, and then I got the little buzzer thing that they hand me and, uh, at 30 minutes it goes off and I'm like, well, okay. You said 30 minutes is 30 minutes. So what it is, (laughs) if it goes off at 20 minutes, I'm like, you people are freaking geniuses. How are you? Your customer care level is off the charts. I feel so good about this place. Yep. But if it goes off at 32 minutes, I'm ticked. Right. So I have have another game that we can play interactively. The whole audience can play it with us, Jeff. Uh, What's that? Think about interest rates and think about what a consumer's reaction would be uh, in the next week to you telling them that you could get them a 5.5, 30% year fixed interest rate with no points. They're going to be freaking happy. So yeah. expectations can be reset quickly. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. You make that promise six months ago. Yeah, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. But but the idea here is that we make promises that we know we can beat. So those two restaurants, one that said 30 and it was 30 versus one that said 30 and it's 20, it's not difficult to predict. You run a restaurant, you know what your wait times are. So pat it by 10 freaking minutes. It's not that hard. But we can do the same thing. If I'm looking at it through the process and, and, and you know, I know that we can have, you know, this, this, component piece of the home, we can have it installed by Thursday. Well, okay. You know, we're shooting for a week from Tuesday. And, you know, if, 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 if it's, if we think 30 days, we got to save 45 and everything becomes a bonus at that point. I only feel comfortable having this conversation with a master of his craft like you. This is not a setup either, by the way. He's like, oh crap, what's he going to say? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Isn't there such a thing as being too transparent? So I've used the word transparency and and honesty and accessibility and, and all those things as something that needed to get dramatically better. But you said something in terms of pad the time a little bit. And I'll re- I remember yeah. our own project manager in the house I'm in now, you know, he had that time, but he he was overly transparent with my wife and said, oh, no, no, I've got two, three weeks of extra 
extra time padded in here. So we're definitely going to hit the schedule. There is such I'll, a thing I'll, as being overly transparent. Yes. So, yeah, I look, I think the, the question here is that your trend, you should be transparent when it's in the customer's best interest. And if it's yep. not in the customer's best interest, then I wouldn't say it. I'll give you a, a, an example from the book. We talk a lot about what we call surprise and delight opportunities, little investments of things that we can do at little or no cost that uh, that catch the customers by surprise. Like, oh, they're looking out for me. This is very, very cool. Well, here's the thing. Uh, you got a lot of salespeople are going to look at it and go, oh, and you're going to get a surprise. We're going to do this at yeah. six weeks in. <laughs> Guess what? Not a surprise. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, if it's in the customer's best interest, uh, share. And if it's not, don't. It, it's You got to look at it through their eyes. Yeah. You can't surprise the delight if there are no surprises. Okay. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> now, the flip side to that is, though, you have to be transparent about anything that is going to be a negative perception of the customer. So yeah. I think the home that, that Karen and I live in right now, it was kind of a wreck when we bought it. We put it, we put a lot of money into this house before we moved in. We worked with a professional designer. By the time it was the day to start moving in, and it was going to be the big reveal of the finished home. And I pulled up and I looked at it's a three-car garage, and the third stall of the garage was crammed with construction debris that mm. they had not yet moved out. So my very first thought was, I had plans to use that as a staging area. I need that space. What are you doing? It would have been very simple. She knew days before that it was going to be cleared out. The simple phone call would say, just so you know, when you come out, this is what we're dealing with right now. And I may not have been happy then, but I was livid by the time I showed right. up. So there is that transparency. If you know something's wrong, you know, it's, what's the old saying? Good news never gets better, but bad news always gets worse. Yeah. So we we got to get in front of that. I, I, I only asked that question really to help people know that you can't use the excuse of, well, I was just being transparent. Because you're, no, I, I love no. your qualifier of it's only when it's in the best interest of the customer. I think yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. So this is a this is a tongue and tweak, cheek, cheek, sarcastic question, Jeff. But won't just having better technology fix all these problems for us? <laughs> I mean, is it? Aren't we just waiting for the super system that will predict and and surprise and delight uh, automatically? It's funny you should ask. Recently, my wife and I were in the San Francisco Bay Area visiting her parents, and we said, "Let's go. Out, let's go out to dinner. Where do you want? We'll take you anywhere you want to go." They chose Applebee's for some reason <laughs> beyond me, but uh, we went to Applebee's, and so we go into Applebee's and we sit down, and there's this like iPad device on the table, and uh, the the hostess has to give us this little spiel that, uh, you know, we don't want you to have to wait for things so you can, you know, ask for a drink refill or you can pay your check or you can do whatever you want on the iPad if you want to. Now, I looked at that and I went, okay, it's Applebee's. It's a commodity restaurant. I get it. I understand what they're trying to do. This isn't a slam on Applebee's. Mm -hmm. But I am left to believe that some executive went, wow, people are not happy with our service. How do we fix it? I know, we'll automate it. So rather than pour themselves into the experience of the dining they said, let's rely on automation and take it completely out of the human touch. Now, again, if it's Applebee's and that's the what, what people dig, okay, fine. But I would argue that for the most important decision in your life that you really want to work with people who actually care about people. So can, in, uh, of course, we know that technology can yeah. dramatically improve. When I look at the automation of photo deliveries, when I think about the portals, the customer portals that builders have set up or that outside suppliers, these are beautiful. These are great. 
But unfortunately, they have caused uh, those who would otherwise be customer facing to rely too much on the system and to take themselves out of play. Well, yeah. the system updated them, so I don't need to. Tragic mistake. And it'll lead to nothing better than a satisfied customer. And you don't have to wait for the technology to exist. You know, you are yeah. you are prototyping and planning out your processes and systems that can be made faster or more consistent or predictable when technology arrives. But that back in the dawn of time when CRMs became uh, prominent, the first question was, well, okay, now what do I tell people? Well, what were you telling yeah. them before? <laughs> tell them that. <laughs> that would be that would be the thing to start with. And then yeah. say, how can we adjust this now that we have this tool called a CRM? Yeah. Um, another interesting question is that recently an owner of a home building company told me that um, in the last two or three years, he's put customer experience as number one in terms of priority for his organization. But he, his personal belief is that uh, customer experience may need to shift to second place after revenue that keeps the doors open and pays all the bills. Um, and that his his perspective was that for smaller builders especially, it's going to be really hard for them to prioritize experience when sales and revenue are dropping. What do you what do you think about that that comment? Because when he said it, he said it at our at our summit, the whole crowd went. <gasps> yep. Did he just say like customer experience is number two? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I. I you and I are business people, Kevin. We understand that revenue is the fuel of an entrepreneurial endeavor. And if you're if you don't get fuel, the machine dies. So we I understand this. It's a it is it's it's not an easy thing to be able to look at. But there has to at least be a tie here. And the reason I say that is that if you elevate revenue above customer care and you're vocal about that, what are your people going to hear? What are they going to They're not going to hear this. Yeah, they're not going to hear that customer care is number two. They're going to hear that customer care is number nothing. It's just, <laughs> it, it, it's there's yeah. nothing that we have to pay attention to. The issue that we have there is that now I can look at it and say, okay, I'm going to rely on short term and we're going to do home on the week boards and we're going to, you know, give away 12% to a realtor and we're going to do all this stuff to try and buy sales. But the problem here is that that might get me some short term revenue, but the very thing we're talking about, referral sales down the road, which are your, least costly, uh, your, the greatest way to hold on to the revenue that you have, those are they're going to evaporate. They're never going yeah. to be there. So you might be able to solve a very short-term problem just by uh, uh, trying to figure out how to buy sales, but uh, you're going to you're gonna bury yourself in the long run with an organization that nobody wants to do business with, including your own best employees. Someone really smart uh, has said a couple times that yeah, easy equals right. So I'm just going to summarize yeah what you said by saying the customer is either in first place or last, but there, there is no in between. The only argument that I would make for the customer care not being number one is if you looked at it and philosophically said the care that we have for our internal team is number one. And as an outpouring of that, the customer care uh, falls. And it's, in other words, it's more important first as a leader to take care of my people yeah. so that they would take care. I can buy into that argument. I, I can understand where they're going with that. But to put revenue at the top of customer mm -hmm. care, I mean, I don't want to work for that organization. Well, yeah, I was going to say, otherwise your, your, your brand promises, we build terrible houses that are cheap and we deliver, right? That could be, yeah. a, that's an, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, an that, that's, that that's does work. Brand promise. That yeah. does work. <laughs> Okay. Uh, two final questions. Uh, yeah. We've both been through the, a complete housing cycle uh, yeah. before. Most yeah. people listening have not. 
what do right. you feels similar and, and, or what, what do you think feels different about this market compared to a, a previous kind of normalization bottoming mm-hmm. of a cycle? Yeah. Great question. Well, first of all, I would argue that, uh, that what we saw in 2020 and 2021 was so unusual and so abnormal because of what we saw in the buyer's mind, there was such a healthy trust in the market that the buyer didn't need to trust the builder, Mm -hmm. the salesperson, or even the home. Buyers were walking through the door. May I, do you have a home? I'll take, do you want to know what it is? Not really. So if that's the case, I am trusting the market so significantly that I don't need to trust anybody else. We didn't see that happen in 2005 and six and seven. Now the trust deficit in the market is radically extreme. Uh, The buyers are still, still have need, but they don't trust the market. So now at the time that trust needs to be replaced, uh, that's the, so, so often the missing link is that we are not focusing in enough on the need for trust to replace uh, for individual trust, uh, builder trust, salesperson trust to replace market trust. So that's one significant thing uh, that I'm seeing differently. I think that uh, makes, I just want to riff please. on that with you because yeah. essentially the, the 2005, 2006 run up was financing schemes. Correct. Right. So it was homes were made affordable, but, but they still, to your point, I needed to validate that you are the right builder for me, that this is a yeah. home I want. Yeah. And, and I want it because it's something that I didn't think I could afford, but you're telling me I can, so I'll take it. <laughs> and yeah. that, that ended right. terribly. But to it your did. point, that, that trust <laughs> in the product and the builder was still required. Whereas yeah. I, I think that makes sense because a lot of people point to low interest rates, which certainly had something to do with that affordability. Uh, but, but we definitely never saw anything to that extent of, I don't even need to, to know or inspect, or check. The most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it was just crazy. So I think that that's a a significant difference. I I think the other thing here is that a huge difference between the correction we're in right now and what we saw happen in 2007 and 2008. If you go back to 2007, 2008, you know, here it was, you know, we're we're crazy, we're giving them away. We have sales and discounts and price drops and buy downs and everything else. And buyers went, oh, See in four years, right? I mean, in in 2008, it was difficult to give a house away. It really, really was. Here in 2022, while there's no question we're having to see value adjustments, buyers are buying. Yeah, they are still buying homes. They're responding, and and you when you know you're the expert on this one. When you look at unique visits to websites, people are still showing up, despite the fact that the Gallup poll that says is it a good time to buy a house, it's the lowest number on recorded history, and people are still showing up. So the need is there. They want to buy, yep. and even at seven plus percent interest rate, they will buy, and that I think is a huge different difference, which speaks to the fact that we never quite caught up to all of the demand that was out there 100%. in the last several years. I, my, my contention is that what's different is, is similar in that we still have an, an entirely housing-obsessed populace, whereas yeah. housing had a stink that no one, to your point, wanted to touch for years. Yeah, uh, People are still looking, still shopping, still zillowing all of the things, and they're waiting for the signal that it's it's a good time to not, I don't even like that phrase anymore. It's, it's, it's the right time to buy for them. And 
that's where sales can meet them and help them understand that if you zoom out on any chart related to housing, any chart, and you go for a longer than a three-year period, the value of that home is higher than it was in the in the prior period. And I, I, one of the interesting sales questions that I, I don't know how your team addresses this, but realtors have been asking it since the dawn of time. Well, how long do you plan to be in this home? Yeah, That to me seems like an incredibly important question to ask right now. Absolutely. Set the yeah. stage. And people are going to say 10 to 15 years. They may not be in the home 10 to 15 years, right. but that's what they're going to say. Yeah. That's and what my they point believe. is, even if they say five, yeah. then you can absolutely illustrate the example of why it would be a good decision for them to make. Okay. Final, final, final question. Sure. What is a potential bright spot for 2023 that you think people may not yet be paying attention to or have thought of? Uh, well, first of all, I think that, you know, we, we got, we got an ugly election coming up and every time that there's an election year, even if it's a midterm election, you, you the negativity is just, it just rains. Yeah. But things always calm down after an election. You know, the stock markets get stronger, people get more confident. And so let's get past all of this uh, ugliness right now. But I think the other thing is uh, for 2023 and beyond, I am really encouraged by uh, millennials and the fact that millennials still want to buy. The oldest millennials are now turning 40. And there's a huge backlog of millennials that are still now coming into the market. Now I add that to the fact that baby boomers are sitting on trillions of dollars of uh, equity and investment that will get transferred to who? To millennials. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm looking at the wave of new buyers still coming into the marketplace and and look, I'm look, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. I'm, I'm on the very young end of the baby boomers, but I'm a baby boomer, okay? And already I'm looking at wealth transference. I'm already looking at it and saying, how do I not wait until I'm dead, but start taking care of my mm. kids today? So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in in the next several years. And 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 so that's the demand side. It's going to be there. And I know, Kevin, I, you and I have had the conversation about whether we're oversupplied or undersupplied or anything else. But I, I don't think anybody's saying we're dramatically oversupplied. But if we see an increase in demand and we don't see an increase in supply, I think we all know what's going to happen. It it speaks to the, the, the growing market. So I'm actually very encouraged about the new buyers that are coming into the marketplace. We, uh, we did not prepare. We did not discuss uh, these answers. No, but we didn't. they're that extremely connected. So I'm just yeah. celebrating that fact. Uh, <laughs> 100%. I think empty nester, move down buyers uh, are the best positioned buyers in today's market. All of those mm-hmm. boomers Absolutely. who yeah. want to trade down in size or location mm-hmm. or trade sideways or right size, as they say, um, those folks are not interest rate dependent. And so yeah. they, they have this benefit of uh, less competition, potentially better pricing. And they don't, they're, they're, they're only concerned about interest rate is uh, what will someone pay for the existing house that I, I live in now or want to sell. Yeah. But the equity v- increase of value on that is enormous. And so we, we were, I was helping a builder do some business planning on sales goals and they were a little down on their villa product that, that just got started and hasn't. And I said, oh, no, 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 that, that is a potential bright spot for you in 2023. And as soon as I laid out the scenario that, you know, we just talked to two people with that same scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, and uh, in terms of the the, the generational um, shift, there there are I, th- I think Zelman categorized that there's like a, a net three percent increase 
in population that's going to come from the from the millennial wave hitting their prime home buying years. And that doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a lot, but the boomers, I believe, were only like eight to nine percent increase. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so the the good thing is that that demand is still going to be there. And the what we're experiencing right now, the longer it goes on, it just that that pent up demand. There, there's a lot of data that I look at that I say if rates come down even a little bit in early early 2023 before uh, broader negative effects happen to the economy, there could still be a pent up demand that's bigger than we've already experienced. And that I'm not actually wishing for that because I'd rather have right. more normalcy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I could see it ha- how it would happen. Yeah, I, without a doubt. And even with the interest rates, you. It, Remember what we said, the circumstances change first, then the paradigm changes, then the actions change. So we have to normalize what's going on. So when interest rates first went out over 5%, everyone went, oh, 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 five, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, okay, I'll buy. Then they went 6%, we went, oh, oh, oh. well, now we're seeing it at 7%. So all of this is just, it takes the time, we've got to normalize first, and then they'll be okay. But to your point, you're right. You see them slip back down to six. You see them go down to five and a half. And I have seen those predictions for the first and second quarter of next year that some economists would suggest that we could be back in that range. Uh, then it's going to seem like a beautiful, beautiful thing. In yeah, retrospect, I, the seven and a quarter that we're seeing today in some places, it's going to anchor what what the perspective for what a six and a quarter looks like down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everyone, go click the link in the show notes from contract to close. Uh, incredible read from, from Jeff and Bob. And the only book that really takes a comprehensive look from beginning to end of that journey. Fantastic, fantastic read. Thanks, Jeff, for coming on. Always appreciate it. Kevin, always good talking to you. Thank you, my friend. Market Proof Marketing is proudly supported by Opendoor. Visit opendoor.com forward slash do you convert to learn how you can partner with Opendoor to increase certainty, speed, and ease for your home buyers. All opinions expressed by me, Andrew Peak, Jackie Lipinski, and our castmates are solely our own opinions. View hundreds of articles, videos, and more for free at doyouconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on social networks or in real life. Now get to work and make sure your company is market-proof.